this evening due to illness and due to uh, somebody with three exams or four exams or something. So we're, we have some, uh, some dear brothers and sisters we need to pray for. The Lord will be with them and near them and encourage them. Now let's open up with prayer. Our Father and our God, we thank you for the privilege of gathering around uh, the teaching of your word. We pray uh, for your blessing this evening as we think about your canon and about inspiration. Uh, We know that your word is a great gift to the church. It's a gift to each one of us. We can hold it in our laps, and you indeed have had servants of old to deliver it to us. They have written uh, under the inspiration of your Holy Spirit, and you and your providence have worked out history to protect it in spite of those who have sought to burn it and undo it and, and to harm your people. And so the word written from your apostles and prophets of old is here for us to enjoy and feast upon. And indeed, it's not alone. It comes with the blessing of the Holy Spirit. And so our hearts are encouraged to know that it is a gift from you and that, that we can find the spiritual meat and milk that we need for daily living here by your grace. And we ask for your time, your blessing upon this time together as we think your thoughts after you. May your son be glorified in whose name we pray. Amen. Well, we're on the topic tonight of uh, the doctrine of Scripture. Particularly, we're getting into canon. Perspicuity is clarity. That you can, uh, it's crystal clear when you can see through it. And when you're not too sure, it's a little foggy. Uh, like um, dishes... Crystal coming out of a dishwasher sometimes. It'll be a little, little foggy sometimes. And so there's a perspicuity to the general revelation, but its intent is not to tell us about the things of uh, salvation directly. And so if we're looking uh, for information about how to be saved, then we find ourselves staring at pine trees and sunsets and uh, at uh, the seashore, and, and we know that there's a God, and we know some basic things about him, and, and we can be profoundly affected and moved and, and even held uh, to be responsible for that knowledge. But at the end of the day, it doesn't reveal to us that he's a saving God, and it doesn't reveal to us uh, how to be saved. Welcome. Uh, And then finally, there's a connection between general and special, kind of a link between the two. General provides the seedbed from which the vocabulary of special revelation comes and and, uh, the expressions and mode of thought that God gives to us. So they're not divorced from each other, but complementary. And so with special revelation, we have a parallel set of things, a special content uh, and special forms that it comes in. We mentioned theophanies and visions and dreams and prophecy and apostolic tradition. And uh, there are certain modes that special revelation comes in, external manifestation like the burning bush and internal suggestion like was given to David as he composed the Psalms. And then that uh, highly technical phrase, but uh, helpful one, concursive operation where The Holy Spirit picks up and carries along an author, and as the author, like Paul, uh, depicted here by Rembrandt, is writing, as he writes, his writing is not only the word of God, but also the word of that apostle or prophet, uh, the Lord carrying along and using him in his full personality. Yes. Cursive is writing. Remember... Can you remember, I remember it in second grade. I understand that children don't do this anymore, but you know, in second grade, uh, Mrs. uh, Corley, she had uh, all of the script uh, cursive letters up above her blackboard, and we had to practice those over and over and over again. Con cursive means to write with or uh, together, 
And so it's the Holy Spirit carrying along the Apostle Paul so that what Paul writes is not just on that occasion his words, but it's the very words of God breathed out through him. Yes, yes. That's a, If we summed it up under doctrine, it's verbal plenary inspiration. Very good. Uh, the characteristics of special revelation, it's redemptive. Uh, it has that redemptive purpose. It's propositional. God speaks to us in language that we can understand. It's authoritative because it's from him. It carries his authority. It's progressive or accumulative, uh, verse upon verse, word upon word, line upon line, builds up. And that's because of us, because we're finite and... Uh, we're, we're born and we're about this high and we tend to grow. And so God speaking to us starts off in a very simple way and then he builds up so that we can understand more and more complex ideas. We go from the first book of the Bible all the way to the end. And the themes and the uh, message there fills out and gets just blossoms with uh, meaning for us. But there is also uh, the fact of a lack of clarity on certain doctrines. We find ourselves at times confused. Uh, there are some things in the Bible which are crystal clear, like the existence of God, uh, God speaking to us, the sinfulness of man, uh, the provision of a Savior. But if you want to know what the Apostle Paul meant by his reference to the baptism of the dead, that's a really hard one at the end uh, in 1 Corinthians 15. A, a lot of ink has been spilt over that question. There's not a lot of clarity on that. As a matter of fact, recently uh, there's been a major evangelical scholar who's come out and and uh, come to the conclusion that there's a fundamental grammatical misunderstanding that we have of that text and that everybody's been barking up the wrong tree and that uh, it has a, um, an interesting twist of a reference. Perhaps when we get to the doctrine of baptism, I can uh, give you some more information on that. Um, or if you want to know what the Apostle Paul meant when he talks about uh, women wearing uh, some sort of head covering, does that mean a hat? What style? How large? How flowery? Is it one of those uh, stylish Victorian things? It's about this large, so everyone will look at you. Or is it one of those smaller uh, beanie-type uh, hats that uh, they wear uh, in Scotland down in the Highlands? What, what, what is this? Or is it just hair itself rather than a hat? What, what is that? Um, these are things about which there's less clarity because there's less quantity of teaching in the Bible on these things, and so people end up not understanding. But uh, the basic doctrines are certainly clear. And there's supersession. As the Word of God grows, uh, there may be something taught uh, that is applicable to one period uh, that was intended for a certain period of time, and then there's something else which supersedes it, like the tabernacle being superseded by the temple. Uh, and so special revelation has this quality that God gives us, and so he speaks to us in the book of nature, as it's called, and in the book of Scripture but ultimately because it is the one God who's speaking in both of these realms, uh, the messages do not conflict with each other. They're not even in tension with each other. Uh, they come from the one divine author uh, who indeed is speaking with the same voice to us, his voice. And so it's true and sure. That doesn't mean that we understand everything in nature uh, perfectly, and it doesn't mean that we understand everything in the Bible perfectly, but the basic message of salvation is clear to us. Uh, finally, by way of review, uh, last time we emphasized that uh, when it comes to writing down the text of the Bible, that there was a historic order of composition. And uh, Charlton Heston came before uh, King David in his composition of the Psalms. There's the prophet king, David, with the crown on his head and a big beard. I, I have a sneaking suspicion he didn't look anything like that at all, but uh, the crown gives it away. 
And then uh, there's a uh, picture of uh, the Apostle Paul, who's supposedly sitting at a desk, busy writing his epistles. And then the last text, can anybody guess what that last parchment text is? That's a fragmentary piece of the Gospel of John. And it's written in Greek. And uh, the... The Gospel of John, it's, it's one of the papyri fragments, and the Gospel of John is probably written in about 80 A.D. And so there's, uh, uh, you have to interpret against the backdrop of the destruction of Jerusalem, for example. So historical order of composition just proves to us the fact it's another evidence of the fact that the Bible occurs in real time and real space in our real world. Uh, somebody didn't go into a chamber and dream it all up and write it down as if it had happened in these different times. God uh, picked up and carried along his prophets and apostles of old and revealed his word uh, to us through them. And so it's both the word of God and the word of man uh, together. Now, we, I want to say just a little bit tonight to you about the topic um, uh, of canon. But before I do, let me, let me sort of summarize uh, the inspiration of Scripture with a historic text. And this is almost unreadable. Um, Unfortunately, this is the full uh, opening uh, section uh, of the chapter, first chapter in the Westminster Confession of Faith on Holy Scripture. And it's basically plagiarized from the Irish Articles of um, 1615. It's also um, uh, used in the Baptist Confession of, uh, ooh, I should know this off the top, 1647. So you, you end up with this same text being used multiple times in multiple public confessions of faith, and it's something on which we should all agree uh, because it's just a basic teaching on the doctrine of Scripture. It says, although the light of nature and the works of creation and providence do so far manifest the goodness, wisdom, and power of God so as to leave men inexcusable, yet are they not sufficient to give that knowledge of God and of his will which is necessary unto salvation. That's a long first sentence. It has several clauses in it, but I think the, the main point is easy to see. Uh, the light of nature and creation and providence, that, that general revelation that comes to us through these things, uh, teach us about the goodness and the wisdom and the power of God, but they don't teach us about salvation. Uh, they leave us inexcusable. We stand before the true and living God uh, if we have never trusted in Christ, if we, if we even claim we don't know him, have never heard of him at the end of the day, uh, we have known about God uh, through his created order, even as his image stares back at us in the mirror as we see ourselves. And we know that he is good and great and powerful and that we are made in his image and therefore are responsible to him to be other than what we are, broken, sinful, and wicked by nature. Uh, but thankfully, the Lord didn't stop speaking to us uh, he didn't only speak to us in that way. Therefore, it pleased the Lord at sundry times and in diverse manners uh, to reveal himself and to declare uh, that his will unto his church. And afterwards, for the better preserving and propagating of truth and for the more sure establishment and comforting of the church against the corruptions of the flesh and the malice of Satan and of the world, to commit the same wholly to writing. Again, another long-winded sentence, uh, which um, uh, we need a a good old-fashioned grammar Nazi with a, with a red pen to, to make those marks and diagram that sentence. Therefore, it pleased the Lord. Yes, there's all this general revelation in the world, but it doesn't lead to salvation. And so the Lord in his kindness 
has spoken to us in various ways to declare um, his will to his church, and he's written it down so that we will have it. Um, I was going to hold up a Bible. You know, this is an interesting new phenomenon. I can hold up this, and I can hold up this. They both have Bibles in them. But uh, we'll, does somebody have a physical Bible they can hold up? There, here we go. See, God, God had this written down. He had this text written so that it might be preserved for you. This is an English translation of an original Hebrew and Greek text. And God had that text written so that we wouldn't just hear in the wind some things about him. We would get sentences. We would get coherent, propositional communication about him so that we could go back ten times a day if we need to and remind ourselves about who God is and what he's like. Because we're weak and we forget and we need to remember. Uh, you know, I, my mother and I had uh, a conversation this morning, and we couldn't remember someone's name. And so here the uh, 51-year-old said to his 75-year-old mother, you know, I'm feeling my age. And she laughed, and she said, well, if you think you're feeling your age, <laughs> uh, we're finite creatures, and we're weak. And we need to be more surely comforted and encouraged. Uh, we need to be established in the truth. And especially because Satan attacks us and temptations are at every hand, the Bible is a great gift of our Heavenly Father to us through His Son. It's there for us to go back to over and over and over again. Uh, for the, I love this language. For the better preserving, propagating of the truth, and the more sure establishment and comfort of the church. You know, i got news for you. We need comforting. And we can open God's Word, and His Holy Spirit takes that Word and applies it to our life and gives us comfort at the deepest levels while at the same time he takes that word and applies it to our mind and burns truths into our thinking and into our experience. And it's just wonderful that God operates on all these different ways and levels as he uses his word in our lives. The mind and the heart and the life all affected by the word of God. And he's committed it to writing for those good purposes, which make it the Holy Scripture to be most necessary. It's not that God needs it. Who needs the Bible? We do. We need it. We need that comfort and encouragement and that reminder message of salvation. Uh, those former ways of God revealing his will unto his people uh, being now ceased. Uh, this is biblical language. As a matter of fact, uh, uh, we live in a day and an age where uh, you know we're getting uh, into very modern translations and, and we need to... Uh, we need to go read the King James every once in a while just to, have, just to have the bells ringing in our ears. This is very Elizabethan, uh, very King James-ish you know, kind of language. And they're, they're intentionally using biblical phrases out of that English translation to, uh, to help us. So our point is, is that God has inscripturated his word. He's written it down uh, for our blessing and benefit. The Bible did not... Drop from an egg from heaven. There were no golden plates that were uh, uh, discovered, you know, in the mountainside or hillside or ground of New York. Uh, it wasn't like the Arantia book. It was not found in a phone booth in uh, Los Angeles uh, during a drug craze period in the 1960s. Uh, it came through real prophets and apostles. It came through real men. It was preserved by real men and women used by God and his kind providence to make sure that we had that book in our hands. Uh, and though Voltaire... And though uh, all the world should seek to undo his word, uh, the Lord will preserve it. It's his gift.
So now we move to the canon of Scripture. And, and by canon, we don't mean a, a big boom. I, I should have put up a piece of artwork. Um, has anybody ever seen Mons Meg? Does the name Mons Meg anything, mean anything to you? It's historically the largest canon ever produced uh, by the British uh, uh, monarchy. It uh, is in the castle in Edinburgh. Um, in the, um, let me get my centuries right. In the, uh, in the 15th century, it, it was the largest uh, boom cannon ever made. And uh, as they tried to move it uh, uh, up towards the north to fight the Highlanders, uh, uh, it's the, the, the wheels sank into the bog and into the mud. It was so heavy. And I think they fired it once and it broke in two, or nearly so. Uh, that's not the kind of cannon we're talking about. There's, uh, it's not a military piece of armament that is meant by the word cannon. Uh, the term cannon means rule or straight edge or reed or rod. And it is, it, it's used sometimes uh, in specialized uh, language uh, to refer to a moral principle, uh, a canon of moral ethics. But here it's used uh, with regard to the rule of faith. That is, uh, what is the authoritative text? What, makes, what are the books of the Bible? Uh, the Westminster Confession uh, does a nice job. It does what a lot of confessions of faith don't do. It goes to the trouble to list all the books of the Bible. Now, why would someone take space on the page and write down all the 66 books that are in the Bible? What would lead someone to be concerned enough to make that kind of a list? So you don't, it's because you don't want confusion and you don't want spurious books being appealed to. You want to make it clear. You want to define what the books of the Bible are. And the Westminster divines felt it necessary to do that in their day. And in our own day, I would argue that that need is, is even greater than it has ever been before. Ah, well, uh, I think a more careful analysis would be that... Uh, the Catholics, uh, the church didn't have the apocryphal books as a part of the authoritative canon until at the Council of Trent, the Roman Catholic Church used it as a wedge issue. Let's see who's with us. Let's pass a new church law that says and declares that the apocrypha is part of the inspired scripture and therefore will test whether they're for us or against us. And if they're against us, then we'll burn them at the stake. <laughs> uh, this would have been 15, yeah, 1540s, 52. It was, it was uh, responded to by the uh, magisterial reformers. So, yes, uh, the reformers. And so uh, it was part of the um, uh, posturing that was done in Europe, uh, attempting to protect uh, less the theological assets as the physical assets of the Roman Catholic Church. Yet the Westminster divines are attempting to counter uh, the whole flood of confusion that came over canon in that. Now, the, the, the interesting irony is, is that nobody was, nobody was trying to say that the apocryphal books are evil or that some of them are, or all of them are non-historical or, 
or useless. Uh, they're books that were written for some reason, and some of those reasons are good historical reasons. And so it was not uncommon in that day for even Protestant land printers to print Bibles with the Apocrypha at the end so that you could read something about what happened during the intertestamental period between the Old and New Testament. During that period of silence when there was no prophecy, uh, these apocryphal books were written down. And, and like First uh, uh, and Second Maccabees tell us uh, about the great struggles of Israel in opposing uh, the surrounding nations uh, who sought to dominate her. So there's a, very, there's a very useful aspect to books that are spurious. Now, there are other books that are not only spurious, but they're downright heretical. For example, the Gospel of Thomas is a heretical book. It is a Gnostic, false, anti-Christian teaching. And uh, the book was written by people with a theological agenda to overthrow biblical Christianity, evangelical Christianity. And so you have to discern the difference between those two different extreme kinds of books uh, when dealing with the topic of canon. So the Westminster Vines do us a great favor. Uh, notice that they put uh, here the first uh, five books of the Pentateuch. And then you have uh, Joshua, Judges, Ruth, and the rest of the historical books, uh, Samuel, Kings, Chronicles, Ezra, Nehemiah, Esther. And then you have the poetic books, Job, Psalms, Proverbs, Ecclesiastes, Song of Solomon. And then you have the prophetic books, the major prophets, and then the minor prophets at the end. And so there's a certain ordering to the Old Testament. Uh, there's a, um, not a priority of inspiration, but certainly... The church has had the Pentateuch longer than it's had Jeremiah. And the Pentateuch provides, those first five books provide a very foundational base on which to understand the poetic literature and the prophetic literature. If you got to only take one Bible book with you uh, off to an island uh, for a week or for a month, you probably would be wiser to choose one of the foundational books uh, like Genesis or Deuteronomy from the Pentateuch than you would be to choose a book uh, such as uh, Habakkuk, one of the minor prophets, uh, that deals with a more specialized kind of topic and application. Uh, that's not to criticize that minor prophet, but it is to put the fact that there are some of the books that are um, clearer on a broader variety of topics and are foundational to understanding the others. You can't understand Habakkuk as nearly well as you ought if you haven't first studied the Pentateuch uh, to be able to appreciate um, the backdrop of what it's speaking concerning in the law of God. So uh, the books of the Bible are here listed in Old and New Testament. Uh, I would point out to you that uh, the four Gospels are given and then the Acts of the Apostles. So you have the Gospels and historical books. And then uh, Paul's epistles are given. Uh, there's agnosticism. Uh, by the uh, Westminster Divines on the topic of who wrote Hebrews. It says uh, a separate heading. It says the Paul's epistles to the Romans, etc. And then it says the epistle to the Hebrews. It doesn't say Paul's epistle to the Hebrews. Uh, and that is because the authorship of Hebrews is disputed. They were not denying Pauline authorship. They were being agnostic on it. They didn't want to, to come down on that issue because they knew that there were disagreements over whether it was written by Paul or by Barnabas or by Apollos. or There have been a whole set of people that have been suggested. I still think it was written by Paul, but anyway, that's, I think it's one of Paul's sermons, but that's just me. Uh, then you have the, uh, uh, the general epistles, as they're called, uh, James, 
Peter, uh, John, and uh, Jude, and then the Revelation, which is again given just a general title uh, because of disputes over its, its uh, history and place. All of which are given inspiration of, by inspiration of God to be the rule of faith and life. That's, that's what a canon is. It's a rule of life. It's a rule of faith and life. A canon is that straight read by which things of life are judged. And God has given us all of his word by which to judge all of life. Yes? It, it really isn't at this point. Um, we'll, uh, I'll mention a little bit about some of the disagreements uh, as we go through. What I'm not going to do is go into a, a special uh, a 10 or 12-week digression uh, over each one of the books of the Bible and the history of its transmission. We could do that. Um, it's a very interesting course. As a matter of fact, uh, not many seminaries in America, but one that I went through years ago had a separate course on New Testament introduction. And we had maps out, and we had lists of manuscripts out, and we had copies of some manuscripts, and we had multiple uh, Greek and Hebrew Bibles open, and we were looking at the footnote technical material that references manuscripts in different libraries around the world, and we ourselves were, um, as students together and on our own, deriving our best guess as to which manuscript was more accurate uh, in its transmission of the original. It was, it was a fascinating kind of science to learn, but that's not the purpose of uh, our time together in the School of Theology. What I am going to do is give you just kind of an overview of both Old Testament canon and New Testament canon. There is a very great advantage in dealing with Old Testament canon, and that's simply this fact, that our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ accepted the Masoretic text canon and that he used that and he quoted from it. He operated with it. He preached based upon it. And that just takes an enormous amount of burden and worry off of us because Jesus is the Son of God incarnate. And if there was something wrong with Deuteronomy, he would know it. And there isn't because he used it. And if the Psalms were uh, late additions to the canon uh, in the uh, second century, as I had a professor one time tried to convince me uh, in theological seminary, then uh, all you have to do in class is raise your hand and say, Sir, uh, Jesus used uh, the Psalms, and he sang them, and he quoted from them, and the Apostle Paul did, and that sort of settles it. And it didn't happen in the second or third century. So we have a, an enormous advantage uh, by having uh, a record in the New Testament of its acceptance and use by Jesus and the Apostles of the Old Testament. Old Testament canon is something that's older, and therefore the information um, is, uh, is less um, voluminous. The numbers of manuscripts are less voluminous. Uh, we, could, we can prove that by looking at any of the libraries in your own home. We can go to your house, or you can come to my house, and we can begin counting books. Let me ask you, what century do you have more books in your house from? The 20th century? or the 16th century? Which one? The 20th, okay? You probably have more books from the 20th century than you do the 21st because a lot of your books that are from the 21st century you have here on, on an iPad or on, a, on an iPhone or in some uh, Kindle device. But if we're talking about physical books, you probably have more from the 20th century than any other time. What, what would be the next century most frequently found in our homes? Copies of books. 19th. And you know you start getting before the 19th 
and it drops like a rock the number of copies of books uh, that you have. And um, uh, for anything earlier than that, we have to go to what? To, to Google or to a, li a really good library, you know, to find that kind of thing. And so it's not surprising that when it comes to the New Testament versus the Old Testament, that there are fewer manuscripts from the Old Testament times just because it's so much older and books tend to decay. And they tend, even, even parchment or uh, skin manuscripts tend to degrade. It's, it's a kindness of God. Uh, there are so many desert lands uh, in the Middle East. And uh, copies of the Bible were put in jars and put in caves and there was no rain or they were buried in the ground and, and the sand never got watered and somebody happens to uh, dig a hole and find one of them and, and it ends up in the uh, University of Jerusalem or it ends up in uh, the British Museum in London or somewhere else and it's a very wonderful thing. But uh, if uh, those manuscripts had been buried uh, in Texas or in uh, Middle Tennessee, they would have all ended up as dust. Except maybe in West, maybe West Texas would have worked out fine, but East Texas would just be mush out in our rice fields here in, in Houston. So uh, the point is, is that it's not surprising that there are more manuscripts from the New Testament period than from the Old Testament period. But um, God has preserved his word by his providence in the text that we have. And they have been passed down to us for a purpose and a reason. Our God is sovereign, not only over prophets and apostles, but he's also sovereign in seeing to it that that text that they were inspired to write has not been lost uh, when we need it. And so it's his kindness to us. Uh, these are the books of the Bible uh, listed off in uh, Confession of Faith, Chapter 1, uh, Section 2. And I'll hit you with just one more large quote well, no, that'll do it. Let's go now to uh, the canon of Scripture more narrowly. Uh, the, the term canon is first used by Athanasius, one of the church fathers, uh, and uh, uh, it comes in principle from 2 Timothy chapter 3 and verse 16. Does anybody know that verse off the top of their heads? Yes, Jamie? You see, if God has breathed out his word, and if it is so profitable, as she has rightly quoted, uh, then it becomes a rule for us. It becomes a measure that we follow. And so the concept of canon is implied in the Bible itself, even though there's no book of the Bible that lists all the other books. That isn't in Revelation. That isn't in James. That isn't in Hebrews. It's not in one of the Pauline epistles. There is one epistle that makes reference to uh, writings by another New Testament author, and that would be 2 Peter, where the author, uh, is, Peter, is making reference to the writings of Paul, which are difficult to understand, but are helpful to us like all the rest of the Scripture. It's a way of speaking that implies that uh, the Pauline epistles are indeed inspired. Uh, the point here is, is that the concept of canon is found in the Bible and is therefore rightly used as a term in church history. And then uh, uh, with regard to the Old Testament canon, we remember in Deuteronomy 10 and verse 5 that the Old Testament law was placed inside the Ark of the Covenant. Uh, this uh, focal point of the worship life of Israel uh, was uh, not a solid block, it was a box and you could open the top, and there were certain things inside 
uh, the Ark of the Covenant. Does anybody remain, remember some of the things that were in, uh, God commanded them to put in there? The Ten Commandments were there, and a jar of manna was to be there, and then also uh, the writings uh, ended up being placed there as well. The law is placed in the Ark, and it shows that it's at the center. It's a central authority in the life of the church. And that law was rediscovered uh, during the history of Israel when it was forgotten during corrupt times. 2 Kings 22 makes reference to that when they apparently rediscovered the book of Deuteronomy or the Pentateuch there in uh, the temple. And uh, they read it and it shocked them to find out how disobedient they were uh, to Yahweh. No wonder they were having all these problems with the surrounding nations and and they were being so uh, harassed and taken over. And then uh, the law was a norm for Jesus and for the apostles. Uh, We see in Matthew 22 and verse 32, uh, uh, parallel to Exodus 3 and verse 6, in the life and ministry of Jesus, the Bible is a norm. He uses it to counter Satan in the temptations in the wilderness. He uses the Bible to correct and to rebuke the Pharisees. And he uses the Bible, I think most profoundly, he uses the Bible in order to interpret for himself and for us the suffering that he goes, on, goes through on the cross. What is the psalm that he quotes from when he says, My God, my God, why hast thou forsaken me? When he gives the great cry of dereliction on the cross, he's quoting from Psalm 22 and verse 1. The psalm is about his crucifixion. And in the middle of the psalm, it turns from darkness to light and talks about his resurrection. He's quoting a verse that was of enormous spiritual and emotional encouragement to himself as he was breathing his last. And it should be for us as well, that cry of dereliction. So the canon, uh, the Old Testament canon, is something uh, that is uh, a valuable blessing to us. My brother, help me with time. We need to stop at this point, don't we? Let's take a ten-minute break. Well, good evening, everyone. It's good to be back with you. I missed our last gathering, and I always feel bad about those kinds of things, but it's good to be back. It's nice to be with you all. I thought we might spend some time talking about special revelation, but sort of digging down into sort of this question. How how can we have confidence? How can we have unshaken confidence in, uh, in the inspired word of God? Dr. Rankin directed us to uh, actually the best place to begin, the Westminster Confession. And, uh, you know, I love to pull these things out in our hymnal here. On page 847 is the Westminster Confession of Faith, and that first chapter appears right there. And uh, actually, I'm going to skip the first sentence. I want to go straight to the second sentence. That's how wild I am. But the divines say this, Therefore it pleased the Lord at sundry times and in diverse manners to reveal himself and to declare that his will that his will unto his church and afterwards for the better preservation and propagating of the truth and for the more sure establishment and comfort of the church against the corruption of the flesh and the malice of satan and of the world to commit the same wholly unto writing so that one little it's not even a whole sentence it goes on that one little sentence there speaks to why God gave us Scripture, right? He, he wants us to be comforted by it. He wants us to be assured. He, he wants to give us his word, and it's supposed to... It doesn't, just, it doesn't just affect us in some sort of hypothetical way. 
we should take comfort knowing this is the word of God. And so this is the question I want to sort of talk about with you tonight. How do we know this is the word of God? Uh, in Dr. Rankin's slides, you see he's used it a couple times, the image by, uh, by Rembrandt, the, uh, of the inspiration of, of, of Matthew. And uh, artists, uh, especially sort of post-Reformation, have tried to capture sort of through imagery, what does this inspiration look like? How do we know God inspired? And, and, and so they will often, like, like Rembrandt, for example, or others, um, one of my favorites is, uh, is uh, a painter named uh, Caravaggio, who... It's interesting how sometimes they'll approach this. Caravaggio has uh, the angel kind of reaching over Matthew's hand and literally kind of guiding it. Now, Matthew seems to be unaware because he's just sort of thinking, and, and but, but the angel's literally guiding his hand. And so this is kind of to represent sort of how the Holy Spirit is inspiring Matthew. Um, another, uh, uh, another sort of Renaissance-era painter, a guy named uh, René, had sort of a similar idea, but he paints the angel and Matthew almost in kind of like a conversation, as though they're talking it through as he's writing. So, you know, both of those, and maybe in a way, are, are, are incomplete attempts to capture exactly how does the Holy Spirit work through these men to accomplish what it says here in the Confession, recording, committing unto writing God's Word for our comfort, for our assurance. I'm not attempting to answer that question. How did the Holy Spirit actually, what's the, the process by which, I, in a sense, it doesn't matter. We can have confidence that the Holy Spirit did do that. Through, um, through this past term here uh, at Christ Church in our Sunday school class, we've been, um, in, in the class that I teach, we've been working through the, the epistles of Peter, First and Second Peter. And uh, for those of you who uh, are in that class, I apologize. The first couple of minutes here has got to be a little repetitive. So if you want to take a little nap or... Uh, whatever it is you would like to do, feel free. Okay, well, yeah, for, for an extra, no extra charge, I will give it to you once again. Let me read to you a little passage here from, from 2 Peter uh, chapter 1. Listen to what Peter says. For we did not follow cleverly devised myths when we made known to you the power and coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. But we, now he's talking about we the apostles, right? We were eyewitnesses of his majesty. For when we received honor and glory from God the Father, and the voice was born to him by the majestic glory, and this is a quotation, you'll, you'll know it, this is my beloved Son with whom I am well pleased, we ourselves heard this voice born from heaven, for we were with him on the holy mountain. Uh, who said those words? This is my beloved Son with whom I am well pleased. You know who said that? God the Father spoke these words from heaven. And what's Peter saying? I was there. I heard that. Now, he's not saying this, I don't think, to brag. I'm just such a great guy. I'm just so, you know, I was so pure and righteous. This is what I... He's saying, you can listen to what I say. My words are meaningful. They have authority, if you will. Because not I didn't just walk with Christ. I was there at the transfiguration when God himself told everybody present and recorded in Scripture, this is my son with whom I am well pleased. He goes on, uh, verse 19, and we have something, I love this part, we have something more sure. So, pause just for a second. Yeah, Peter was there on the mountaintops, he's part of the transfiguration, he sees and hears the voice from heaven, and then he says, and we have something more sure than that. What could this be? I can't wait to read what comes next. We have something more sure, the prophetic word to which you will do well to pay attention as a lamp shining in a dark place. 
he's talking about the Bible, the prophetic word, the word of God. So, great, Peter was there on the mountaintop for the transfiguration. He's saying, we have something better yet. We have God's word. I don't know if you feel that way about God's word, but you probably should. I mean, this is a really, really, this is a tremendous blessing that we have, that God took the time, as the, as the Westminster divines say, in diverse ways and manners, God took time and effort to make sure we had his word in 66 books, beginning to end, expressing everything he wants to express and preserved over centuries. If you think about that just for a moment, that really is a, it's a startling and, and remarkable insight into God. Now, I want to ask you again, I want to sort of cycle back to this question. Everything I've just said probably sounds okay. But you understand, in our culture today, there are many people who just do not see this book as authoritative. It's a book. If, if they're generous, they might say, it's got some interesting stories in it. Uh, some of this is, is neat. And you know that Jesus seems like a good guy. I'm sure he was nice and taught some interesting and helpful doctrines. And uh, you know, even, our, even our old friend Thomas Jefferson, yeah, I like that. Get rid of the miracles. I'll shrink the Bible down in a pamphlet size. And uh, you know, the Jefferson Bible, don't bother with it. But, but what on earth... Why would you consider this something more than any other book on your shelf? As Dr. Reckon was kind of going through, you got some books, and you know, how old's this one? How old's that one? Well, this is just a, you know, one little slot on the shelf, right? You, you could have many more books where this came from. And you understand that's kind of how the world sees this. It's just another book. Books vary in quality. This is probably better than Harry Potter, maybe not as good as John Grisham. I don't know where on the spectrum it falls for the atheist, but not very important or no special thing. Obviously, we don't see it this way. I'm going to tell you something here. I've spent my life, uh, at least my adult life, among learned people, as the world would define that, at universities where uh, I've been at universities that have entire departments devoted to the study of sacred texts. I'm not talking Christian institutions. I'm talking secular institutions. You can go to a secular university, and they'll have... There'll be people there whose job it is, who've spent their lifetimes studying books like the Bible. They do not see what you and I see there. They read the same words, right? They, they study the same books. They, frankly, they probably spend more time with it than some of us do. And that's not a good thing. I'm not saying that to be bragging. But, but for whatever reason, it does not provide the comfort for the unbeliever that it does for the believer. Same book, same words, same same devotion to reading it. Read, I'm, I'm reading carefully, I'm sure they are too. But you understand there's a difference for the believer versus the unbeliever. And that's what I want to sort of try and wrestle with here for at least for a few minutes uh, tonight with you all. How do we know this is the word of God and why should that mean anything to us? I'm going to use the, uh, I'm going to use the whiteboard. Is that going to be object if I use the whiteboard? Not like I'm going to stop, but even if you do object, but I thought I'd ask. I want to think about Scripture. And I want to suggest to you there are really kind of two paths or, or two sort of um, directions in which we can sort of think of it as authoritative, that we can sort of have assurance about it. Um, sometimes we refer to it as internal confirmation and external confirmation. I'm going to start in some ways, external is easier, so I'm going to start with internal. Think about the Bible that you've read. 
just think of the Bible itself. Forget about what people say about it. Think about what you know sort of from, let's say, let's say, not between the covers. Just what is in there. What does, does the Bible suggest to you? Does it, does it purport itself to be anything special? Do you understand the question? Does the Bible assert its own authority? I, I, that's, that's probably, that's too easy a question. Of course it does, right? I, the very words of the scripture itself seem to say, you need to pay special attention to this. Now that doesn't differentiate it from other kinds of works necessarily. Uh, I, I'm not recommending it to everyone. I've read the Koran. It kind of does that too. It also contradicts itself from time to time, which I find problematic, but, but, and this one doesn't. Nevertheless, there are clear assertions of authority. It's unusual though, in the sense that this particular book doesn't just assert authority, it directly connects that authority to God. Let me give you a couple of examples, and we can maybe look at these together. Let's, um, if you have a Bible, you might want to pull it out. If not, you can just sort of, you know, listen and nod and, you know, look authoritative yourself. That always helps. Let's first look at 1 Thessalonians, one of Paul's letters. And I'm just, these are just some examples. There are plenty, plenty more where this comes from. But first of all, I want us to sort of establish the Bible itself claims to be something very special. So when I say that, in 1 Thessalonians chapter 2, verse 13, here's what Paul writes. We also thank God constantly for this, that when you received the word of God which you heard from us, you accepted it not as the word of men, but as what it really is, the word of God which is at work in you believers. You see what Paul is asserting here. These words I'm giving you, this isn't made up by men, this isn't coming out and just hashed out of my brain, this isn't a clever little story to entertain you. This is not the first in a series of mystery novels I hope to sell many more of in the future. These are the words of God. And you, he's praising them. Good job. You received it as such. Good for you. You ought to. Now, we could find many more passages. I'm just picking this one almost at random. Plenty of times throughout Scripture, you will see the connection. This is not me talking. This is God talking through me. The authors themselves frequently claim that. Is that okay so far? That's not very complicated, right? In the neighborhood of Thessalonians, maybe just one more for clarity's sake here. Go to 2 Thessalonians. I bet you can find that from where you are. Chapter 3, verse 6. Paul writes again to the Thessalonians, Now we command you, brothers, in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ. Think of how often that kind of phrase appears in Scripture. In the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, that you keep away from any brother who is walking in idleness and not in accord with the tradition you receive from us. Again, that rather bold assertion that Paul's making here. You heard us. You believed it. Some didn't. Shame on them. Good for you. You ought to. And this is coming from God. So there's a... On one level, you might say, boy, that Paul just thinks so highly of himself. He thinks that whatever he says is so important. But you understand, he draws that always. This, because it comes from the Lord Jesus Christ, makes it very important. I'm simply, in a way, I'm the vehicle by which he accomplishes this. Going back to those images of the great painters, right? The, you know, the, the angel of the, of the Holy Spirit, you know, whispering into the ear, guiding the hand. I'm just telling you what's been conveyed to me. So it's not simply the work of man. Dr. Rankin referred to another one here. Now, this is kind of, kind of different. You'll see, for example, Dr. Rankin referred to this several times. In the Gospels, for example, how often does Jesus himself reference the Old Testament as though it's authoritative? 
right? He, he seems to think it's the scripture. He seems to think it's, it's authoritative and valuable. And he's not the only one. The, the other New Testament authors do the same thing. They go back to the Old Testament and they find there, they use it, in fact, as though it is a source of authority that sort of confirms and advances the, what they're presenting in the New Testament. There's not a, there's not a bifurcation. These aren't two different books. These are really, you might say, continuations of the same story. At least that's how they seem to think of it. And a great example, okay, so maybe Jesus, okay, we could imagine he was raised in a Jewish family. Okay, so he read the Old Testament, blah, blah, blah. Wouldn't be surprising, right? But even the New Testament authors themselves recognize one another's authority. Turn to Second Peter, if you would, for me, just for a moment. Second Peter chapter 3. I want to quote this exactly because I think it's such a, a powerful statement here. Easy to lose sort of in the, you know, as you're reading through the letter, you can often kind of miss this. Before I even read, let me preface this, you know. When I read like Galatians or parts of Acts, you know, Peter and Paul did not always see eye to eye. I don't know if you've ever caught this. They, in fact, at times seem to be almost adversaries. Now, I think they do. This is the, the beauty of the Christian faith in a sense. They do kind of work that out and they do kind of end up on the same page. But they go through a period where they are really kind of at odds with one another. But I'll tell you, where I see, when I see Peter and Paul line up, I pay attention. Because, boy, if, if those guys with their passion and sometimes even not agreeing on these, when they do agree and they do come to, we ought to pay attention to that. And so here's what Peter, after all of, you know, whatever struggles he and Paul had together, look at what Peter says in Second Peter 3, starting at cha- chapter 3, starting at verse 15. And count the patience of our Lord as salvation, just as our beloved brother Paul also wrote to you, according to the wisdom given him, as he does in all his letters. You see how he's really pouring it on here. Paul is really something special. In all his letters, when he speaks in them of these matters, there are some things in them that are hard to understand, and I can confirm that. I've tried and failed myself. Which the ignorant and unstable twist to their own destruction, as they do the other scriptures. That last part is critically important. Peter sees Paul as an inspired author. This isn't, this isn't centuries later, some, you know, sort of some, some Christians getting together at a council. Let's, let's call that one scripture and that one's not. This is Peter who, remember, this is the same guy who just a little while ago told us, I was on the mountain with Jesus, heard God speak from heaven, and by the way, Paul is writing scripture. Inspired words to which you ought to pay attention. It's a, a very bold and strong statement. It's a strong claim, of course. I'm not denying that that's the case. But these sort of internal representations of, of Scripture and claims of authority. So we have claims of authority, and then we have sort of mutual confirmations. Christ referencing the Old Testament. Peter referencing Paul. And there are others that we could talk about. But these, the book itself certainly makes this claim about itself. So that's sort of one way to think of this. Turn our attention for a moment to what we might call external uh, sources or, or external affirmations of Scripture authority. As I mentioned, you all know this, and they mentioned it in the Confession, 66 books, ultimately, altogether, Genesis to Revelation. Does anybody know roughly over how long a period of time Scripture was written? It's, I'll round off, it's about 1,500 years from beginning to end. 
And you could dispute that, you know, exactly when is the first written. It's a long, long time. I don't know about you, but if I sit down and, and try to write maybe, uh, you know, I'm trying to maybe write an, an outline for a presentation I have to give, if I don't kind of, you know, sort of do it more or less at the same time, I'm going to lose track of the beginning by the time I get to the end. Uh, the longer something I write is, the more I get concerned that, that I might lose track and, and get astray and, and making the end line up with the beginning is sometimes difficult. If you told me, Bob, I want you to, I want you to write a report. I want you to start the first half now. I want you to put it aside and 30 years from now pick it back up and write the second half. You would be awfully lucky if that was consistent. And that's me, just one author doing one thing over a relatively short period of time. Not a millennium and a half, but over 30, you know, few decades. How hard could that, how hard could that be, right? But how much more so dozens of authors writing over 1500 year time span nevertheless are able to make their arguments consistent and coherent, one from another. I'm going to go out on the limb when I say this. There is no way human beings could do that by accident. People trying to do that in small groups over short periods of time fail to do it. It would be a tremendous coincidence to have a couple of authors do this and not contradict themselves I hope I don't offend any Muslims in the room. The Koran does exactly that. Ostensibly written by one guy over a relatively short period of time, he couldn't keep it straight, literally contradicts itself. You don't see that in the scripture. Now there are, I will, I will hasten to add, you will find, because you will hear this among some of the, the, the critics out there. Well, you know, this verse contradicts that one. There are sometimes what we might call apparent contradictions. That is sort of on the surface, they seem contradictory. But you will always find, as you press through and you understand the sort of the, the, the deeper implications, indeed there are no contradictions here. That is itself miraculous and ought to give us reasons to believe that this is the inspired word of God. Make a comparison, if you will. Again, Dr. Rankin alluded to this. I meant to bring one with me, but I left it at my office, and this is not, not very helpful. How many of you have ever read even maybe part of Plato's Republic. I'll bet a few of you have. Have anybody ever read anything by Aristotle? Probably healthy that you don't. (laughs) Certain questions I don't want to know the answer. I have, I have, um, I've sat in classes where professors droned on and on mercilessly about the most minute and diverse aspects of Plato or Aristotle. I never heard anybody say, how do we really know Aristotle wrote this? They take that at face value. It says so because it's on the cover. The politics of Aristotle. Hmm, Must be written by Aristotle then. Very, very little sort of skepticism about the origin of this text. I'm going to get to Plato in a second. I'm talking about Aristotle right now. It's pretty, it seems pretty obvious that Aristotle did write things. I'm not going to say that he didn't. But I do have to say the following. All the evidence suggests that what we receive as Aristotle's texts are not really, the words we have were not the ones written by Aristotle. They were probably notes taken by his students and preserved over time. Let me tell you. As a professor myself, I would hate to think 
that my reputation a thousand years from now would be determined by what my students thought I said to them. At the very least, there's room for some misinterpretation there. That's Aristotle for us. It is, it is filtered through, and that, now that's, 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 that's the good news. Frankly, we don't have, whatever we think about what those students wrote and what they did with that, we don't have their notes. We have copies of the copies of the copies. Many, many centuries later, the oldest texts from Aristotle come well after he died. These are copies of copies many times over. But again, nobody disputes the authority of Aristotle. Talk about Plato and Socrates. We, we, think of, uh, we think we know Socrates very well. Let me just say this. Socrates, as far as we can tell, never wrote anything at all. So to speak authoritatively about Socratic philosophy and just without questioning as a legitimate source, that's just kind of crazy. Now, I'm going to hasten to add, I, I think I, I've read a lot of Aristotle. I, I like Plato. I, I find it insightful at times. I don't think it's scripture, but they're good sources. But I want you, I'm just making a comparison here. The reliability of those texts, which are considered some of the foundational texts of the Western world, it's not one-tenth as reliable as Scripture. In terms of, of the oldest fragments of documents that we have for Scripture go way back, much closer to the source, and they seem to be derived from originals, not from sort of other people's interpretations of originals, Right? And certainly we don't have the Socratic problem where Socrates did a lot of talking and somebody hopefully got that right. I hope so. Otherwise, we're way off. We don't get this conversation in our culture very often. People will not have this conversation. But in terms of ancient reliable texts, there is nothing like the Bible. The Bible has been preserved, again, I'm going to suggest to you, in a supernatural way. It, there's nothing else like it. In, not, not just in the West, in any religion, in any cultural context, there is no set of books like the Bible in terms of sort of how they've been preserved. It's the hand of God. I want to ask you, though, and this gets maybe to an important point here. Everything I've just said, these are, I find them to be encouraging. I, you know, I, I, I like that the Bible makes these claims about itself. That makes me feel good about it. Um, I, I appreciate sort of the internal confirmations. I love what Peter says about Paul, for example. Uh, I love that Christ, I don't, I don't want to open up any controversies here. You know, Christ talks about Adam as though he were real. He talks about a flood. Did you know that? Christ himself. As though these things actually happen. That's, this, this, this does my heart good. And then I'm glad to know that, that as I sort of stand back, I look at it from outside. It's remarkable that this book would be preserved the way that it was, that it would have the consistency that it does. There's no human reason why that should be the case. And then every once in a while, if you just sort of, I don't know if you follow these sorts of things, but, you know, some of the, the, the historians will get these notions in their head. Well, you know, this person referencing the Bible, oh, that guy never existed. And then, oh, you know, archaeologists will discover, well, gee, well, here's his nameplate. Turns out he was real. Oh, it's exactly the time the Bible says it was. How embarrassing for them. There are plenty of external confirmations of the reliability of Scripture as well. But I want to suggest to you there's another sort of form of, of confirmation. Do any of you read the Bible? I assume at least a few of you do, right? I see at least, that's at least four hands. That's good. The rest of us can... I'll talk to you later. That's five. All right, we're making progress. <clears throat> 
what, what effect does the Bible have on you? I, I mean this, I, I, I'd like to sort of hear your response. When you read the Bible, are you different? Is it, for example, maybe it's a counterexample, you could read the encyclopedia, right? You could do that. I'm not going to ask who read the encyclopedia. And you would know some stuff, right? If I pulled out, and my son does this, if I pull out the encyclopedia and I read about the Titanic, I might learn how many people died in that disaster. I might learn, you know, maybe details about the ship. And then I would have some knowledge I didn't have before, right? Does the Bible basically do that? It teaches me things I didn't know before. It fills me with some facts. and I mean, it does that, right? Does it do anything more than that? What I'm asking might be a harder question than it sounds. What does the Bible do for you as you read it? It, it, almost every page does that, doesn't it? This is, you know, if you, if, you, if you read the Bible maybe too superficially, I will say this, the name of Jesus doesn't appear on every page of the Bible. But I think you can make a strong case that the idea of Jesus appears on every page of the Bible. And so you're right, no matter whether you're in Genesis, whether you're in some minor prophet whose name you have a hard time pronouncing, whether you're in the Gospels, you're, you're learning about Jesus and you're reminded of what that might mean for how you lead your life. And that's a good thing. What else? Yeah. I do love that. That's right. It's, our selfishness and sin, we kind of do think it starts with us, right? I mean, we're the measure of all things. That's, that's, that's our sin nature talking. Uh, but you're right. The Bible does not tolerate that for a second. The opening words... If you think of it, both of the Old Testament and then, you know, John's account of the New Testament era, the same beginning, in fact, right? John goes right to the beginning with God. And not us, not, not whatever our needs or desires or interests might be, but God. And you notice there's no explanation. I love this. There's no explanation for God. He just was. Before anything else, He was. Does He have a beginning? No, He did not need one. We do. We're finite creatures, but not Him. And that's, that's encouraging. And that's just one example. I mean, there's so much more throughout Scripture like that. How about the rest of you? I, 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 I don't think you can overestimate the importance of what you just said. Without God's word, would we really... We might know our sin in the sense that, you might say general revelation can show that to us, maybe. Um, would we have any recourse? Would we have any knowledge of the alternative? 
God's plan for our salvation? Would we know that without God's word? We really don't. Now, remember, we talked about this before. General revelation is very helpful, does a great deal for us, reveals a lot about the nature of God, can even teach us our sin in a certain sense, maybe in a, in a limited sense. But salvation is not contained in general revelation. If you are to truly know God and be redeemed from your sins, you need his word for that. That's a pretty... And you know, there's no other substitute, right? Let me tell you, reading Plato's Republic will not save you. It might actually condemn you in a certain sense but it certainly will not save. Nothing else will. So this is a... Maybe I'm laying it on too thick when I say this, but I want you to think about that for a moment. That's a pretty powerful book that can actually lead to your redemption. That's that's something important. Jamie, you had your hand up. You are absolutely right. I, you know, there are lots of authors I enjoy reading. Shakespeare brings me great delight. Um, even the bad plays are pretty good. There are plenty of things we could read that could entertain, could bring you some joy, could cause you to think more deeply than things you thought of before. But to motivate you to change your life, to devote it to someone else, to to become a martyr. I mean, boy, that books don't usually have that kind of effect on people. I didn't make this up. Yeah. This is true. Yeah, or to some degree. Right, right. Yeah, yeah. But I think for me, at the end, uh, I was even Yeah. Exactly. If what you're looking for is like some sort of neat checklist, right? Uh, it met these three criteria, so it must be the word of God. That that will not work. And we can and we can talk about these things. These things are important. They do speak to the authority of God and and His word. But fundamentally, what really makes this? And I think Jamie was alluding to it. What makes this book a different book than anything else? It is a living word. What a, 
That's right. Yeah, the flip side of that, apart from that word, that doesn't happen. That's a pretty, that will disappoint some people, right? So we could have this conversation with our atheist friends, and they might say, oh, that's interesting. But when we make this, when we say this, they might dispute this, they might doubt this, but they haven't been transformed by the word of God. I, well, that, that, this is a controversial question, and people that, that – um, I'm going to say something bold here. I would say no, but I'm given to sort of very black and white distinctions. Uh, people whose names are much more prominent than mine would say, oh, yeah, sure. And oh, maybe I should – just to, to soften that a little bit, God is sovereign. He can do whatever he wants, right? Um, but I think his own word suggests that the vehicle he uses, that he declares the way he does this, is through his word. Now, how that word gets conveyed, sometimes maybe through miraculous mechanisms it gets conveyed. I, I do fall back on the notion that a book written over this period of time by this many different people that has no contradictions, does not have sort of flaws built into it, that can't be the work of man. But aside from that, what is its work in your life? What has it done for you? It does convict us, lead us to, or cause us to, to look to Christ as an example. It transforms us. I'm gonna, if you don't mind, share a little sort of a, sort of a personal anecdote here. Some of you have heard me talk about before about how I came to Christ. Let me tell you, it was not because, and, and I, I, in a way I can kind of, you know, envy those who did have such an experience. Nobody witnessed to me, nobody, now, I want you to sort of, I'm going to say this starkly. I want you to understand what I'm saying here. No person said, Bob, you ought to really think about Jesus Christ. You know, let, me, let me share some verses with you that will convict your heart and convict you of your sin. No such person appeared in my life. The only way, the only thing, the only piece that God used to reach my heart, and I wasn't, let me, again, be, I was not looking for him. I was not asking. I was not, I was no seeker. I was not seeking. I was de-seeking. But I made the foolish mistake one day of reading the Bible. Now, and I was, I was a grown man. I was in my 20s. Well, okay, kind of a boy by our standards, but, but you know what I mean. And I read that book, and I'd, I had read lots of books, plenty of books. Some of them were interesting, some of them were not. Some of them had an important influence on my life. Some of them I don't even remember at this point. But this book reached out, grabbed my heart, changed it into something else, put it back in me, a whole different kind of heart. I was a new person. That's the power of God's word. No other book can do this. So when I say to you, I'm kind of preaching to the choir, I realize, right? You wouldn't be here probably right now if that same kind of transformation, maybe not exactly in that manner, but that same kind of transformation happened with you. So you can testify to the power of God's word. How do you know it's authoritative? Because you're a disciple of Jesus Christ, and you wouldn't be otherwise. Now, having said that, that's a very hard argument. It's like Bruce, this is what you're getting at. That's a hard argument to make with somebody who doesn't believe. It'll change your heart. Well, it hasn't changed mine. Well, not yet. And then, oh, the Presbyterian answer, well, maybe you're not part of the elect. Too bad. Uh, if, if you're trying to win kind of an intellectual argument, understand, it might not be a winnable intellectual argument. 
Faith is the bottom line, and, and we know this, because, and I, I know that you know this. Whether you thought about it much before you came here tonight or not, it's really kind of beside the point. You are who you are, because God's word reached into you and changed you. This is the vehicle that God uses to convey uh, his grace to us, and that's a, that's a beautiful thing. You had your, your hand up. Go ahead. Yes. Which I didn't read till years later. It's a that's that's a beautiful way to put it, and it's probably maybe I'm beating a dead horse here, but it really is a living word in that way. It is unlike anything else that human beings write, which again can be interesting, engaging, educational, can be all those things, but it's not transformational in this way. Nothing else is. Uh, again, I know that, that did you know this, but but think of it in this sense. I mean, why does how can we have confidence that this is the word of God? Try it out. It will change your heart too. Sure. Mm-hmm. Well, there's a, sort of the long answer and the short answer, right? Um, the short answer is yes. The only reason I say this is because after the fact, I mean, I'm, I, I'm aware now, obviously, I wouldn't be here if God didn't call me to be here. So, I don't think he's bound by, you know, cultural barriers or whatnot. So, yeah, if, if, if I was born in a Muslim culture and God wanted me and I was part of his elect, this would have happened somehow. I can't tell you how. I don't know. It's right? hypothetical, right? But, but this is a good question, right? So when I look back at my own, it's just God is a gracious God, right? When I look back at my own experience, my, you know, my parents were kind of, to the, the, the best of his ability, my father's kind of like, you know, God's the man upstairs. He's all right and doesn't do a thing for his life, but that's the, as far as he will go to acknowledge God. You know, my mother would sort of dabble in it sometimes, so she would take us maybe to like a charismatic church for like, you know, a month, and then I would get old, and then we'd take, you know, two, three years off, and then maybe she would, you know, let's try the Methodist still. Those guys are boring. We're out of here. So there's, there's nothing there that would say, ah, this guy's being primed. He's being... Now, as being shown that all these things didn't matter, all these things were empty and worthless, and I mean, that's the lesson in a human sense that I was learning as a child and then as a teenager. Uh, so, uh, again, this is kind of a, uh, uh, this is not a testimony I can brag about, or I can't say, oh boy, you should be like me. I was, I, I didn't even know what I was doing, right? It's completely powerless in the situation. It, the only reason I even bring it up, because there, there are other kinds of testimonies, right? My wife has a much different testimony than I do. The only reason I bring it up is because it's sort of, among other things, I am grateful for it, but among other things, it shows how God's word is the transformational piece, right? Without that, wouldn't matter what I was, whether I was raised Muslim or anything else. Without that, I wouldn't be anything. I would be as lost as ever. I, I, that's, I, I'm glad you bring this up because this is an important question. We, yeah, go ahead. Yeah, no, that's, that's, you know, why does God even choose to reveal himself this way, right? Because we think of it, 
we say the word, we talk about you know God's word, the living word of God, we, we throw that term out. But could God have revealed himself conceivably in some other way? You know, through a picture or an image or but he chose the word. Because I think he knows us and knows what we need, right? This is this is the way that human beings need to know of him. There could be other ways of conveying knowledge, but he chooses the word. And that, that word can take many forms. That word can be expressed. I mean, why does Doctor, why does why does uh, Fred get up here and preach every Sunday at us? Because we need to hear the word. We hear the word. At the same time, we can read, and, and as Augustine says, take up and read. You can do this yourself, and you should do all of these things, right? You should absorb it in every way that you can. But the common thread that binds all of that together is God chose to reveal himself, in a sense, in a book, through the word, as opposed to whatever other way he may have done it. We should probably wrap up here, but I don't want to sort of you know, unplug anybody before you're ready. Any, any other questions, comments, anything else we'd like to talk about before we wrap up tonight? Yeah. Yeah. No. There's. There is. I mean, there really is a. Um, this is no joke. There is a, a, a book called the Satanic Bible, and its its purpose. I, I, I want to be careful what I say here. I've read parts of it. I wouldn't read the whole thing cover to cover. You, you read the first page or two, you've got plenty, but. It's a curious thing in that what it attempts to do is kind of turn Scripture upside down. So almost everything that you sort of that you know from the Bible, it tries to invert it. So what's the opposite of that? That's what we're going to say, which leads to some pretty curious things. I mean, think of the Ten Commandments. If you try to turn all of them upside down, that, that can get kind of awkward. <laughs> it's not a, but it's it really is. You know, in some ways, you think of like we've been talking about Islam, for example takes a bit of the truth and then perverts it, right? So there's something, a little bit of truth in that surrounded by a lot of error and, 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 and wickedness. The Satanic Bible doesn't even attempt to get the truth. It tries to take the truth and then absolutely negate it. What's the exact opposite of that? You can't live like that. Nobody could live like that. If they were consistent, they probably wouldn't last two days. <laughs> I didn't hear a word of that. <clears throat> I agree. Yeah, they're not, not a lot of followers, really, right? I mean, that's it's true, right? It's a good example. Yeah. Mm-hmm. A God, right. As though there are many, and this is one. Right. Again, because a lot of it looks okay, right? Even, even that one sentence, most of the words are right. Only one is different. Turns out to be critical. It's not the same. Yeah. 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 And this is, I'm, I'm glad you mentioned this. Maybe we, should, I'll, I'll, we can maybe end on this point. But there are plenty of other books that claim 
to be something special, that claim to be revelation, that claim to be, you know, God's message to you. Lots of religions have them. Even some non-religions have them, right? Everybody claims to have sort of their version, but only one of them literally transforms lives, and that's, that's God's word. So we can go home confident in that. Exactly. Well, that's true, right? We don't stop, right? Exactly. Yeah. How could you not? I love sometimes as you're reading through. Sometimes you see this in Paul or Peter or some of the others. You're reading through, and Paul just gets so excited, he just suddenly starts praising God. Like he's writing, writing. Oh, and glory be to God. He can't help himself, right? He's he gets so overwhelmed, and and that should be really probably should be our reaction as well. Boy, as you're reading this, it should drive you to your knees, and it should bring you to the throne of God, praising Him for what He's done. And when we think about it that way, I don't think we can help it. Speaking of which, let's pray now. Gracious God, we are grateful indeed. Our hearts overflow with gratitude as we think about how you have preserved your word. You've, you've keep, kept it together all of these centuries so that we, even here now in this room together, can reflect upon it, can see Jesus Christ in it, and have our lives transformed by its power. We thank you, Lord, that you are a loving God who cares about your people that much that you would go to those lengths on our behalf. And not because we deserved it, not because we were so good or special or, or loving towards you, but, but you loved us that much that even in our sin, uh, you would provide that path of redemption. Father, we pray uh, tonight as we uh, conclude here that you would bless each one and bring us back together soon as we continue our studies of you and your word. We pray it in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Hey, thank you all very much and uh, look forward to seeing you a couple.